Luke chapter 19. We're going to be beginning at verse 37. And we're going to read to the 40th verse. It says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for bringing us all here together, Lord, to learn more about you. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds that you would please take away the distractions, that you would help us to be able to focus on your word. We lift up to you, Pastor Stark. We ask that you would just heal him, Lord, bring him back to us, and we just thank you for blessing him with um, the ability to teach your word. We ask that you would uh, please uh, just get me out of the way, Lord, so that your word might be proclaimed, and we pray that you would please forgive us of our sins. And Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So we have here Jesus making his triumphal entry as is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have different accounts. Some we have says Hosanna that they said. Here we just see blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is Luke's account. And he was drawing near, says the descent of the Mount of Olives. And we know from earlier in the passage, we didn't look at it, but just kind of summarizing here, he was coming in on a donkey, a donkey's colt, which is quite different from what might have been expected by the Jews at that time because they were looking for their Messiah to come. Long expected, been prophesied about. Zechariah 9.9 has... Behold, your king is coming. If you go there and you'll read that passage, you'll you'll see similar to what we just read here. So they knew Jesus was coming. How he was appearing to them was not what they were expecting. Jesus came on a donkey, which was a sign of peace rather than a sign of war. Back in those days, a king riding in on a donkey showed that he was coming to you in peace rather than him coming to make war with you as if he was coming on a war horse. So we see what they said. They said it's not just his disciples with him. It says the whole multitude of disciples. So who is it that we have there? We have everybody coming to where? They're coming to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. That's what they're coming to celebrate. And so Jesus is coming down and the multitudes gathered there and they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice 
for all the mighty works they had seen. John 12:19, I'm excuse me, John 12 at verse 9 through 15 give us a little insight. It says, "Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And that's the quote there from Zechariah 9.9. So that was John's account. We're just going to look at those two today. So why had the people gathered? They were there for the feast of Passover, and they had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So there was a multitude gathered there, and they were giving glory to God for what they had seen. They proclaim him to be king. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll see that they declare him king. Thanks. Rightly so, they call him king. In Revelation 19 at verse 13, he says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And at verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John chapter 18. John chapter 18 at verse 36. says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. And then Pilate, in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. These are all having to do with Christ being king. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And the last one I had for him being king is Revelation 17. At verse 14. It says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. So you see here when they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they said so correctly. They identified Christ as King. Then what do they say? They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That might seem familiar. In Luke 2, 14, at, when the shepherds were being spoke to by the angels, they said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. If you note that here in 19, it says peace in heaven. And in Luke 2, peace on earth. That is because wherever Christ is, there is peace. Whether Christ is in heaven or whether Christ is here on earth, that's where heaven is, is where Christ is. And so you have this great scene. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's riding on the donkey. They're throwing clothes down before Him. Palm branches. They're glorifying His name. And then yet, what do we have here in verse 39? It says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why do they want to rebuke them? They're glorifying God. They're rightly proclaiming Jesus to be king. And yet the Pharisees say to rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees knew the law of God and the Old Testament. They knew that the Messiah was to come and be king. But this is not the Messiah they were looking for. This wasn't who they were expecting. They wanted someone to come and deliver them out of Roman rule. They wanted a king to come and wipe away their oppressors. Not to come in on a donkey peacefully. They wanted a king that's mighty to overthrow their enemies. So what do they do? They ask him to rebuke his disciples. They have been blinded to the very truth that is currently before their eyes. They have, who do they have in their presence? Jesus Christ is there in their midst. He is there before them. They have seen the works and miracles that he's done. And yet they're still blind to the very fact that this is God's only son sitting there before them. Mark 4.12 says, That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand. 
lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Matthew 13, 15. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. We know from Scripture that Christ was rejected by his own people. That he being the chief cornerstone was made a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. You know, this is Palm Sunday. And we're talking about his triumphant entry, but we cannot go without talking about Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. Because that's why we're here. We're here to glorify Christ. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. What is Jesus' response to the Pharisees? But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The stones, the very creation itself, would proclaim God's majesty. Does it not? Look around you. All around us we see God's glory in the earth, his creation. If you look in a microscope, you can see all the intimate details of God's creation. If you look in a telescope and you look into the heavens, the stars, it goes on and on and on forever. You can see God's glory, his majesty. Jonathan Edwards, he said, in the sinners in the hands of an angry God. I have a portion here. He said, Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light, to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willing to will, <clears throat> excuse me, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals. While you spend your life in the service of God's enemies, God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with, and do not willingly subserve to any other purpose and groan when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who hath subjected it in hope. If you haven't read that sermon, I do encourage you to do so. It's a wonderful sermon. He's speaking there to those who have not yet known Christ, who don't see him as king, who do not see them as Lord. Just here as the Pharisees are telling him to rebuke his disciples. They could see, but they didn't perceive. They heard, but they didn't understand. He says, 
that the very stones would cry out. That's because when God created the earth, He saw what He had made and He called it good. It's only because of our sin, Adam's fall, that creation is subject to sin. Romans 1, 20-21 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts darkened. Romans 8, 19 and 22, 19 through 22, excuse me, says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So we know, he says here, that the stones would immediately cry out. Creation itself would begin glorifying God if we did not. We talked how, a little bit how Christ being the chief cornerstone. So I have here 1 Peter 2, 4-8. Because not only is Christ the chief cornerstone, which if you don't know what that is, a cornerstone is the first stone that is laid. It has to be laid correctly because all the other stones will be laid according to where that stone is positioned. And if it's not laid correctly, the structure, the building could topple, may not stand so 1 Peter 2, 4-8, keeping that in mind, says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, you also, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief, the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the Pharisees there have Christ in front of them and that they are rejecting what he is doing for them. He didn't come in the way they expected. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem wasn't the entry they were looking for, but it was the entry they needed. He was the Messiah, not that some sought to see as king, to save them from their tribulation. He was the Messiah that came to save them from their sins. And 
And then Peter, he calls us living stones. That's talking to those here that believe in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As that chief cornerstone, he makes us living stones. In my work, we deal with rocks a lot. I'm a well driller. We break rocks, move rocks, shovel rocks, a lot of rocks. <laughs> living stones. There's all types of beautiful stones that God's put on this earth. There's obsidian, jasper, amethyst, crystals. You can go on and on. Diamonds. There's also stones called leave it right. I asked my boss, what's this one called? He said, oh, that's a leave it right because you leave it right there. It, it, it might look pretty, but it's not worth anything. And if Christ is calling us to be living stones, we need to be more than just be pretty faces sitting in church. We need to be more than just a stone. Stones don't move on their own. They have to be moved. Christ should move you. Christ should make you living. Out of you should flow God's word. This is about his triumphal entry. What did he triumph over? He triumphed over the grave, over death. He took sin and he destroyed it. He, His blood washed it away. So we no longer have to fear death or the grave because Christ is our king. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. He here calls his people jewels. He says that he will spare them. As we've talked, what did he spare us from? Damnation. We are deserving of death. We are naturally at war with God. We are his enemies. Yet, what did he do? He sent his only son to come to this earth, to enter into Jerusalem triumphantly, because even though he's coming into Jerusalem, he is the very Son of God. He knows what's about to take place. This is just a week prior or so to the events leading up to his crucifixion. He's about to be delivered into their hands. He's about to be taken prisoner. He's going to be beaten and scourged and ultimately crucified. Yet he still comes. He doesn't turn back. He knows what's before him. This is why Christ came. He came to die for you and for me. Now Matthew Henry points out in his commentary, we have these people here glorifying and rejoicing, praising God. Here's Christ coming. And yet some of the same people are there in the crowd yelling, crucify him. Because that's where I was. I could have very well been glorifying and praising God moment and the very next I'm calling for him to be crucified because of my sin. 
I didn't want anything to do with Christ. He shined light where I didn't want light to be shined. He calls us out of darkness into light. So what do we have to praise God about? Absolutely everything. That's what we're here today for. That's what we're here every day of the week for. We should be praising and glorifying our God, our King. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, is He not? He deserves our praise and our glory. Because if we don't do it, the creation will. And I like how it says, immediately the stones would cry out. If we are to keep silent, there's no hesitation. Creation will glorify their king, their creator. Christ is our victory. And even though his triumphal entry didn't wasn't full of horns and music and didn't have big pomp and circumstance as many kings or he came lowly, humbly. His was the best entry of all. He is victorious. So let us not be silent. Let us praise God. Let us glorify Him. When we come here on Sunday morning and we sing God's praises, that's a picture of heaven right there. You surrounded by people who love Jesus, singing glory, singing praises to Jesus. It's a glimpse of our future when we get to sit with Him and enjoy His presence forever, where there's no more tears, no more sorrow. When we are called home into His glory. And that's all I have this morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Lord. We thank You for Your triumphal entry into history. We thank You that You did not leave us to ourselves, that You loved us, that out of your abundant mercy for us, Lord, that you saved us. You claimed us as your own special people, as jewels, as living stones. Let us glorify your name, Lord. Help us to praise you each and every day. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.